right, well, it's good to see all of you uh, this morning. Glad that you are in worship with us. We have a lot of teachers in our congregation, and so every teacher knows this moment, okay, where a class has, for whatever reason, kind of let you down a little bit. Uh, They haven't been doing their work, or they're not participating, this or that. Um, Right now, I'm teaching two classes at Houston Baptist University, and and typically, a class of mine, you know, Professor Skinner comes in, and he's got kind of something corny, funny to say to the end of class. And then, you know, I, I try to get lively discussions going, get debates going, again, make corny jokes, slap at myself, that type of a thing. Uh, and for the most part, right, we just got our student service back from the fall. Seems like it works. Okay, the kids enjoy it. They enjoy the class time. And they are more interested about theology than they were beforehand. So I count that as a win. Um, this Thursday, though, I was getting ready for my second class, and I had noticed kind of a drop-off in my second class between my first class uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays in discussion and just comprehension of the material and things of that nature. And I hadn't really thought about it that hard, but I went to go grade some assignments uh, before class, and when I went in to grade uh, the second class's assignments, I, there was good news and bad news. The good news was there wasn't anything to grade, and the bad news was there wasn't anything to grade. They had, you know, they had three reading reports every week. There's a reading report that you have to turn in. It's a grade. It goes on your GPA, and over half the class had not done one of them, one of the three. And so it instantly clicked, right? Obviously, this is why class is just not as sharp as uh, other classes where they're actually doing the reading. And they have some sort of idea of what we're talking about and why we're talking about it. And so I walked in, and I was a little frustrated, right? And I was a little upset, and every teacher here can kind of relate to that. Uh, You spend a lot of time, right, wanting to have your students be engaged and teaching them the material. uh, And it's hard not to take it personally, right, when they decide, you know, just to not care. So instead of walking in with, like, a chipper corny little joke, I walked in and I wrote a date on the board, and I said, that's how long you have to drop my class, because uh, most of you are going to fail at this point, you just aren't doing anything, this is not maybe mean for you, this is me looking out for you, I dropped a class in undergrad, right, it's not the end of the world, um, you can still be an amazingly handsome professor later in your life, <laughs> but you would rather drop it, right, than get an F, because you didn't show up to school for the first, like, eight weeks, Right, and it was kind of a terse, uh, not as chipper type of atmosphere for that class period. And afterwards, I, you know, I got an email from a student who thought I was perhaps a little bit too rude and too short with the class. And I responded, and I was trying to explain to him one the frustration that it feels on this end, right, and then two the fact that. He was like, you know, a different professor showed up on Thursday. Uh, and that's, I cho- chose his class because I'd heard about you and that kind of a thing. And, and this is not the professor I, you know, want to take class from. And I was like, actually, it's the same exact professor. Um, the reason I was so frustrated and upset and why the class had the tone that it had that day was because I want you to be engaged in the material and I want to be able to have lively discussions with you, and I want to be able to have fun and kind of learn from your disciplines and have theology impact your discipline, all those type of things. 
if I didn't care, right, if I wasn't that first professor that you had heard about, then I would have come in and just gone on with my day, right? You're adults. I don't care about your lives. I don't care about your grades. You can do what you want to do. But it's because I cared so much about my class, right, and I cared about what happens in this hour and 15 minutes we have together that I have these feelings of frustration and anger, and I feel the need to warn you and to let you know that bad consequences are coming your way. Um, I mentioned that story because, you know, this is the second Sunday of Lent where we are in a season of time as a church where we're thinking through sin, and we're thinking through the consequences that sin has in our lives, and we're thinking through things that maybe we need to give up uh, as we look towards and move closer towards celebrating Easter. Um, and oftentimes we ignore sin or we push it aside or we don't want to talk about sin or don't want to talk about God's judgment um, because we want the loving God and the happy God and the God who blesses us. Uh, and then sometimes we make it out to seem like those are two different gods. Like you have this angry God and then you have this loving God. Um, but biblically, all throughout the scriptures, right, it's the same kind of picture as a teacher, right? It's because God loves so much that he wants you to really deal with sin. And he wants you to know the warnings that come with the behaviors you participate in. He wants you to know the judgment that might be coming your way. Um, if he didn't care, right, then he wouldn't be giving you these things in the first place. Um, we're in the book of Amos, and, and we'll see today, Amos is uh, rightly called one of the more judgmental books of the Bible. So, if you're looking for some judgment from God, congratulations, you found it uh, in the book of Amos. Um, I'll recap, we're using Amos to walk through Lent because he calls out a lot of sin and calls people to repentance, which is what we're doing individually and as a community um, in the season of Lent to get ready for Easter. Um, to recap last week um, and get us ready for this morning, uh, Amos the prophet is an 8th century prophet. So he's actually the first prophet to have anything written down about him historically. Uh, so we're talking like 750, 760 BC. And he's ministering to, he's giving messages and sermons to the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay. Now I said all of that in 50 minutes last week. Uh, so I apologize if you were here last week, but now you're caught up, all right? So if you would, turn with me to Amos chapter 1. We obviously went into it a little bit deeper last week, these first two verses. This morning, though, we're going to read the first sermon and kind of the main message of the book of Amos. And it'll go from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to the end of chapter 2. Um, so it's, it's a little bit more, uh, which means we won't be able to go as in-depth as usual. Um, but I'll try to point out some of the highlights and the big themes for you and, and point you towards what I think is the emphasis of Amos' message here. Um, what we've got in 1.3 through 2.16 is often called the speech of doom, which is awesome. If you're going to have a speech that goes down in history, right? You either want it to be like an eye of a dream type thing or the speech of doom. Um, and so what we'll see in Amos this morning uh, is kind of the heart of his message in his book. Much of the rest of Amos will be expounding on one or two or three of these themes. We'll also see a couple of reasons why Amos is a difficult book. It's many historical and geographical references. It's emphasis on sin and God's judgment. Um, and then 
we see here again the, the very first probably sermon. He's in Samaria, we should imagine, the capital city of Israel preaching to um, these people the speech of doom. Now what he's going to do is he's going to give us a whirlwind of announcements concerning God's judgment to a whole bunch of different nations. Okay, um, You probably have a map somewhere near you. Uh, I gave this to you just so you can visualize a little bit. Showing up on the screen, you probably can see places as well. If you look by the Dead Sea, you'll see Decoya on the left, maybe three-fourths up. Remember, this is Amos' hometown from verse 1. Um, it's even numbered for you, okay? So Amos is going to call out eight nations and call out their sin and the judgment that's coming upon them. And you got the first seven numbered here, okay? So he starts up top, number one, um, with Damascus and Syria, and then he'll go down to Gaza, uh, and then he'll move, number three, up north to Tyre. We know from the Gospels, Jesus goes to Tyre. It's probably the northernmost point of his ministry. Then we go back all the way down to Edom, number four, then to Ammon, then to Moab. And then you'll see here, right, the kingdom that God had created has been split into Judah and Israel. Israel's the northern and the green, and Judah's the southern and the purple. Um, he will also give an announcement of judgment to Judah, uh, and then there'll be one more nation, and this will be the big surprise here and the rhetorical kind of punch of Amos' speech. So, he's going to kind of circle the wagon, okay? He's just about to, like, put on an automatic weapon and just spray all the way around, okay? Um, he's about to give it to everybody within the general vicinity uh, of Israel. So, we start reading in Amos 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, so God speaking through Amos, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour their strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven, and him who holds a scepter from Bethadin, and the people of Syria shall go to exile to Kir, says the Lord. And this is when your typical person closes Amos and finds a new book to read, right? Um, <laughs> so we can't, we're just not going to be able to go into all the cities and places mentioned. I will just tell you, though, they're real, and the people listening would have understood these type of things. So before Amos is written, before he preaches, um, this king, Hazael, the house of is going to be destroyed, goes and has this kind of total war in Gilead. I mean, completely crushes them. So that's what's being referenced here, right? And then some other key cities in the Damascus area. So he starts with Damascus. Thus says the Lord, round two, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza they shall devour her strongholds. I'll cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, perish, says the Lord God. If you are looking for children's names, I think there's some good ones to be found in here. Um, Why would you name your son Ashkelon? Well, it's a city that got destroyed based off a prediction of the book of Amos. Thought it was just a good warning for him all the time. Um, 
Thus says the Lord, round three, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. You're seeing some patterns maybe. Um, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their borders. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of the battle with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king will go into exile, he and his princess together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes. For their lives have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Okay, so there's your spray. Israel, um, everybody around Israel, gets taken out, all right? Amos is throwing heat on all of them, pointing out their sins, and then announcing God's judgment on them. Three things to notice, because we can't get into the details of all of these. The first is, notice the repetition that you find in each of these oracles. Um, Namely, that first line is very interesting. For three transgressions, and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. Most people consider the sin that's called out eventually... Uh, for each place, the fourth transgression. Um, it's almost as if God says, okay, there's a three-strike rule, and then I'm coming. But even then, right, he goes, okay, I'll give you one more chance. And then the fourth strike happens, and he says, okay, I'm not bringing the punishment. Um, this, I think, hits on a, a theme that's important in the, the Bible and is often missed in biblical theology, especially in the Old Testament, which is the incredible patience of God. Um, you have your right God bringing judgment, and, and people rightly sometimes, incorrectly sometimes, react very negatively to this idea that God brings judgment, right? Um, I thought God loved everybody. Uh, I'd invoke that teacher analogy, right? It's because of the love that he is so angry and warns of the consequences of these destructive actions. Um, But God is not arbitrarily throwing down punishment on people, right? He's waiting. Okay, for three of these, you do this three times in the punishment con. Okay, four times, and now it's it's here. Um, If you look through the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, where God is... Seemingly, some of the most violent, uh, uh, has some of the most violent actions of the flood and the nations being destroyed. Um, what we often overlook is just how patient God actually was before judgment.
comes. Um, and if you and I were to put ourselves in the place of God, I think we would find that we would have nothing near the patience that he has to create his creation and then watch it be destroyed from the inside out by this, these wicked, violent human beings who oftentimes are doing this in your name. And yet God sits. He just sits on his hands. And yeah, occasionally something big happens. You've got the flood. You've got his nations being taken out. But even in those cases, it's not like God knee-jerk reacts to his creation. He's so incredibly patient. Years after years after years after years go by. Think about the second coming of Jesus to Christians. We, we wait for Jesus to return to his creation. And it's kind of normal for us now to realize, okay, apparently it's going to be over a couple thousand years before Jesus returned. The early Christians thought it was going to be right away. And so when it didn't happen, they thought, one, maybe they misheard. Maybe Jesus wasn't coming back. Or two, maybe there was some kind of lie, right? He was going to come back, but got caught up with some other business or decided not to. And we owe Peter, um, with making this theological move for us, he says, no, the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is not because he's broken his promise or forgotten about us. It's because of his patience. He wants all people to be saved. And so Jesus is up there sitting on his hands, giving time for people to come around. Do you not think that God would rather just end all of this? And we see throughout the scriptures over and over again, it grieves the Holy Spirit. God's sad when he looks out on the violence in the world. This is our sin, the evil of the world, all the chaos and mess that's around us. It's not just our problems that God looks on um, with kind of a, a at-a-distance coolness. I would imagine God himself, Jesus himself, would rather just return and put an end to it. And instead, he's beyond patient. I, I, I don't have that patience, and I can't really imagine that type of patience. And think about in our own lives even, how patient God has been with us. Um, how long he's pursued us. How long he's wanted us to change something or hear something from him. And how often we've ignored it or put it aside or ran away. And he's just repeatedly and gently come back after us over and over and over and over again. Um, Amos here is, is making sure that we don't miss the point, right? God is not reacting hastily or arbitrarily uh, to these sins. He is um, mindfully bringing judgment after habitual and systemic patterns of evil that have invaded certain places in his creation. Um, the second thing I want you to notice are these sins that are listed um, they're all slightly different. Some of them are, are similar. Um, but they all share in common that they're crimes against humanity. They're inhumane actions. Um, and except for Judah, because it is part of the, the original kingdom of God, 
they're not religious at all, right? They're just civil crimes. It's people being evil to other people. It's uh, crimes against humanity. Like I said, Damascus, um, it's ruthless war. In Gaza, it's slavery to Edom. We know there's this huge... Um, they'd go into the villages and grab the entire village and sell them into slavery to Edom. Um, Tyre, they're selling slaves to Edom. We also know Tyre is broke this covenant of brotherhood. Apparently there's this international treaty they were involved in that they broke. We don't know who it was with. Uh, we can imagine that the original people would have understood right exactly what was going on here. Um, with Edom, they seem to have this deep-seated lack of empathy and this need to be violent, this overflow of anger and wrath. It's a culture that has um, become consumed with this um, violent tendency. The Ammonites uh, have expanded their borders when they've done so unjustly and violently. He uses a very telling metaphor here. He says, you've ripped open a pregnant woman in order to expand your metaphors. Um, this is the this is supposed to evoke in our imaginations, right? The kind of evil that was done against other human beings in the name of political expansion, political progress, economic growth. Um, Moab, um, they had this kind of over-the-top violence where they don't even just need to kill people, but they're burning to lime the bones of the king. It's like their violence can't be satiated, can't be satisfied. And they just keep going after it, going after it, even after it's dead and done. They just can't get enough. Um, and then Judah, again, we, we get some more religious sins here. They've not listened. They've rejected the law of the Lord. They've not kept his statutes. We'll learn later in the prophets and through history, Judah is doing many of the same things that these other nations are doing. Now, there are three big things to notice in the seven uh, oracles we've got so far. Um, but so far, preaching in Israel and Samaria, this is all red meat material to Israelites, to the northern kingdom. What I mean by that is this is the stuff that would have like pumped them up. They would have cheered and agreed on all of this. It would be as if you took the Republican candidates and said, I'd like all of you to spend two minutes telling me what you do not like about Hillary Clinton and what you do not like about Bernie Sanders. A crowd of Republicans. Right. This is not a, oh, he said what? This is, right, this is tossing the red meat out, right? This is, this is talking to the crowd. Um, there's no disagreement here. Um, they're all, yeah, no, all these nations are evil. Yeah, even Judah, let's get all of them off the map. God, bring down your judgment on all of them, right? He says the fire will come down and destroy all of them. That's another common theme in this repetition, in these war oracles. Um, so this is, this is very much red meat. In fact, um, we know that prophets were often called in to say things like this to armies before they went to war. So perhaps if the Israelites were going to war against Damascus, um, a prophet would come in, maybe like a coach before a football game, get his team pumped up. The prophet would come in and, and declare condemnation over that nation as a way of saying, God is on your side. God's sovereign, and he'll give you the victory. Um, and so as Amos is doing all of this, he's not causing really any trouble in Israel. Okay, They're probably enjoying it, right? They're like, this guy's good. We should, we should get him some more gigs. Um, but prophets are not prophets unless they get themselves in trouble. Um, and Amos is definitely a prophet. 
And so if Amos could have just shut his mouth after Judah, he would have been fine. He could have had a big speaking ministry, his face on a billboard. But he has to keep going. And he mentions one more nation. And this is where it all hits the fan. Thus says the Lord, For the three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And you can hear the collective gasp. Did you just say Israel? And now you see people start to turn. And you see people start to get a little angry. He's not turning the criticism on the inside. It's easy to throw stones at people outside your community or your tribe that everyone agrees um, should be having stones thrown at them. It's quite another thing to start criticizing from the inside. And now he gives a judgment oracle about Israel. And, you know, just Amos, if he's, he's just doing a really bad job of staying in trouble. Look how inordinately long it is compared to the others. <laughs> So he says, because they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, which I think is, is, is haunting imagery here. He's saying the economic injustice that's happening, um, people dying without uh, food for lack of money. He, he uses the analogy of selling their souls, their bodies, selling the needy to buy a pair of sandals. That's kind of economic injustice that's occurring. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, they turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in to the same girl, that's literal, um, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar and garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Notice here that four sins are listed off for Israel. Remember, for three and for four, for these other nations... Really, only the fourth was mentioned. For Israel, God, through Amos, decides to lay it all out. Let's see what you've really been doing in this, really, the state of your obedience and actions in the world. Um, so, he mentions selling the poor into slavery. Um, he mentions this justice that's being removed from the oppressed, the heads are being trampled, the people who are afflicted are being turned aside. He mentions this illicit sexual activity where father and son um, have relations with the same girl, profaning his name. And then lastly, he talks about the taking advantage financially of the unfortunate. Um, he talks about wearing the garments, taking a pledge, and drinking wine of those who have been fined. He's talking about people who are poor who have to give up money to rich people that they owe money to. Um, which was a sin in Israel. You couldn't charge interest just so that these situations wouldn't occur in God's economy. Um, but they did nonetheless, right, because they wanted to gain money. And so the idea here is that when someone had given their garments uh, to someone who was already rich, and when a poor person had given their money to someone who already didn't need it, that not only were they taking it, they were flaunting it. So they're sitting down on the altar wrapped in their garment. Right, where they're going and buying expensive wine and drinking the wine while this person, again, suffers and is oppressed. Now, this surely would have invoked a lot of anger on behalf of the Israelites. 
Amos has just done what good prophets do and what we see Jesus do a lot in the New Testament, which is he's trapped them. Okay? He has rallied them up around God's rightful judgment for certain sins in the world. And then he has put a mirror up and said, but these same sins are occurring in you. And now they really have no moral high ground to stand on. And now they really have no reason to get out of this judgment. Now Amos is the first historical prophet who actually suggests to Judah or Israel that their nation might be destroyed because of their disobedience. Um, we are more familiar with this if we're familiar with our Old Testaments. Um, but th- this is a new theological concept to these people. Does that make sense? They think, and we'll see this later, that because they're in covenant with God, that protects them from things like this. There's some like secret protection clause right, against this type of damning judgment. Um, and Amos will repeatedly go back to the covenant and kind of have to reteach them the covenant. God made a covenant with you, um, but it wasn't just you can do whatever you want and nothing will ever happen. It was if you obey, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, you'll be cursed. Um, they're living in what you might call a post-covenantal moral era, um, where the covenant is so far back in history um, that it's not on their minds, and it doesn't guide their morality or things of that nature. So he anticipates, we'll see them say this later, right? You can't say this to us because God's on our team. He anticipates this in this opening message, and so he um, has a defense ready. So he talks about this grace, this covenant that was formed. He's speaking in God's voice now in verse 9. Yet it is I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I had destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons or for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Think Samson. Um, prophets, people of mighty words. Nazarites, people of mighty actions. Um, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So God goes back to the salvation he gave these people. He says, no, I, did I not save you? I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you land. I made you a people. I continually sent you prophets and people to rescue and deliver you and almost in like a hauntingly sad question he goes correct me if I'm wrong didn't isn't that our relationship isn't that what we've done and somehow you thought that your response to that relationship was to go and be as evil as the rest of the world if not more evil Do you not remember me saying that you were supposed to be a kingdom of priests? A blessing to the world. You were supposed to be separate and holy. Not mixed in among them, contributing to all the evil in the world. And then the damning verse in verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, break their vows, be unable to commit my acts. And you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. So the Israelites are doubly damned here. They've not only broken covenant, but they've also refused to listen to um, God's continual warnings towards them um, to try to get them 
to avoid the judgment. So thus judgment comes in verse 13. Behold, I'll press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. It's almost as if they're perhaps worse off for having the covenant to begin with. They of all people, right, should have known better and should be behaving better. Um, God perhaps would have expected it from these other nations, right, these pagan nations who don't know the Lord, who the Lord has graciously reached out to. Um, But instead, because of their massive disobedience, uh, their sins and crimes against humanity, um, judgment, Amos says, is coming for them. Um, Now again, I want to remind you, right, this is not now an angry God who's not the covenant God who graciously saved Egypt sins of the Nazarites and the prophets. This is the same God, right? And we'll see later in Amos, there's going to be even more chances to repent and to find life. Um, But God is sending a clearer message. These actions are self-destructive. These actions bring judgment. These actions lead to your destruction. Um, Now thinking through what this text might have to say to us, what the Holy Spirit might have to say to us through these texts, through this sermon in 2016. Um, I think perhaps there are two um, that he's led me to, to share with you. The first is that we've always got to be very careful as Christians to focus on, both in our own lives and in, in the life of people around us, the sins that matter, or the sins that matter most to God. Christianity, I think, has had a big problem in the past hundred years or so with majoring on minor sins and minoring on major sins. Um, that is to say, uh, you know, we're we're coming out of a big battle. Christianity is where we kind of staked ourselves out as against homosexuals um, and. For people in my generation, it's ironic because it was churches full of divorced people, right, who were picking on homosexuals. Um, Now, not to bring condemnation on people who are divorced either, right? But just to say, in the Bible, there's a lot more um, negative things said about divorce than there are about homosexuality. Um, Without commenting on either of those, right, I don't think it's really even about homosexuality or divorce. I think it's a deep human uh, instinct, right? To point out and focus on sins that don't affect us. And to throw stones that way. And so it, it could be anything, right? Particular to a community, particular to a nation. But we... We grab on to the sin that we see in other people, but we don't think is that big of a problem in ourselves. And we usually divide ourselves and get in fights and are known in even our culture, in culture wars, for, 
for hammering on things that Jesus would say are not the weightier matters of the law. They're not the things that God cares about most. Alcohol, tattoos, and all kinds of stuff. It changes generation to generation. Um, music, cussing, things of that nature. Um, while all the while, right, the world is full of economic injustice and slavery and inhumane actions, war and torture. And yet, those people cuss. And so, let's beat up on them. I don't think you can say some sins are not important to God. Right? But I can't say, I think, as humans, we've developed a convenient tendency to really focus in on perhaps some of the smaller and sometimes extra-biblical laws that, that, that take up so much of our focus and ignore the much weightier things. In Jesus' own words, he says there are things that are weightier. Justice and mercy. And when we look through these, these crimes against humanity, the indictment for all of these nations, and we see that as the common thread throughout all of them. How do you treat people who are oppressed? How do you use your money? How do you love your neighbor? How do you give voices to your neighbor? Who perhaps is without a voice, perhaps is in slavery, is trapped. Who perhaps had his voice taken away during a torture session. Jesus says the, the biggest command is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the sins that matter. I think it's it's very uh, so the prophets, right? A lot of the reason people don't preach to the prophets is because it, you know, it gets preachers in trouble too, right? People don't like to talk about stuff like this. The fact that we're really wealthy and the rest of the world is really poor. Right? That maybe, just maybe, we have a little bit of responsibility for that. We didn't create the system, but we're living in it. <coughs> we didn't start the fire. I'm sorry, that wasn't was called. <laughs> <laughs> always burning since the world's been turning. <laughs> the prophets, though, they go after the big ones. Right? Big, large-scale acts of inhumanity. Um, and then two, I think we've really got to take the rhetorical punch of this message to heart. Amos is much less concerned with all these other nations acting this way. It was a trick. Amos was all along just setting up Israel, God's people, to recognize how influenced they were by sin. And how much they needed to change and to repent. Just like Amos, you know, I, I think it's odd to expect non-Christians to act like Christians. What is confusing to me is when Christians don't act like Christians. Right? Then I'm like, okay, what's going on? Is it a thing of knowledge? Is it cultural things? Is it you know, 
confusion thing? What, what's happening here? Um, we said earlier, Amos is in what some have called a post-covenant moral era. Um, and I think it actually, strangely enough, corresponds to what we're in culturally as well, in the post-Christian era. Um, we talked about this before, you see it in the culture, right? It used to be that Christian values uh, won the day. Um, that Christians kind of got to call the shots. And we're seeing more and more. Um, legislation and elections and all kinds of different things. But that's just not the case anymore, right? Um, Christianity is now more of a minority. We're going to have to learn to live as exiles, right? Not as the ones with all the power, um, and then not as the ones who are trying to change the world through legislation or persuasion or whatever it might be. Um, some have, have really bemoaned this, right? I mean, it, it really causes some a lot of hurt and heartache that, that we can't vote our values, right, into the United States, um, that we have to be content with living them. Younger people like me, perhaps are stupider, think this is actually good for us. Think, uh, think Christianity got a little arrogant and off its rocker when it has so much power. And that what actually happened when Christians had the power is is they could control people in certain ways, but on the whole, there started to not really be a dividing line between Christians and other people. They acted just like everyone else acted. They talked like everyone else talked. They did what everyone else did. One of my favorite scholars, Stanley Harawas, he has a famous line, he says this, the first task of the world is not to make the world more just, not to change the world. The first act, the first task of the, wor- of the church is to make the world the world. Let me repeat that. The first task of the church is not to make the world more just. The first task of the world, of the church, excuse me, is to make the world the world. And what he means by this is, is perhaps before Christians get so caught up in trying to change people or getting upset when non-Christians don't act like Christians, maybe the first thing Christians are supposed to do is be Christians. And that's what he means by making the world the world. Maybe the first thing Christians are supposed to do is make sure there's a line between them and the world that the world would be able to recognize it is the world, and it's not Christians. Not in a divisive or negative way, right? But in a way that makes very clear, hey, there's a group of people who don't act like we act. You don't use money the way you use money. You don't treat each other the way that we treat each other. They're not just yelling at us about it, right? They're living it out. There's two groups of people. Maybe before we try to to get the government or the international corporations or whatever you might have um, to be peaceful, maybe we should be a community of peaceful people, peacemakers. Maybe before we should try to get people to address systemic issues of injustice, however you might want it to be, maybe we should just witness what it means to be a community where there isn't injustice. Maybe before we should try to get people who hate each other to forgive each other and learn how to live with each other, maybe we should be a community where people who disagree love each other. 
And there was one another. Maybe before we try to make people share with each other and the rest of the world, we should just be a community where we share with one another. And we take care of everyone who's inside of us. Maybe the church's task is first just to be the church. This is really goes hand in hand with our vision here at the church. Right? I mean, there are churches in Sugarland who will, right, when something happens, they'll start up, not recently it happened in a big church in Sugarland, they'll start up a nonprofit and form a super PAC and try to create legislation in the world, right? That's just not my response to things, right? Not saying anything's good or bad, but my response is always, okay, what should the church do? How can the church act in light of that? How could we be a community that exists as an alternative to that way of living? So that people would clearly see there are two, two different groups in the world. There's a group transformed by Christ, and then there's a group that's not. And this group is in constant conflict and tension and can't seem to figure things out with money and relationships between genders and other people and nations and all of these things. And yet there's this group, and they seem to have no national hatred between each other. And they seem to have no poor among each other. And they seem to have this love that's undescribable between themselves. I mean, I've always cared more about reforming the church than about changing the world. Because I think that's a logical order. You can't change the world if you don't have your own ducks in a row. As a community, as Christians, globally, we don't have our ducks in a row. In fact, I don't think Christians were ever really actually called to like coercively change the world. They were called to be a witness. What it means to be a witness is that other people look at you and decide that's a better way. So as we live as a community, it's not that we have ideas for the government about how to use their money, right? The idea is you can follow Christ and use your money the way that he commands us to use our money. It's worked for us. Right? We're a city on a hill. We're not going in and changing cities. Cities are looking at us and going, how do they avoid all of that? How is that group of people able to live that way? And our answer is, well, because we've been transformed by Christ. We've been invited into relationship with the living God. We don't have a strategy for the world. We are the strategy for the world. The church isn't a consultant for nations, right, about how to fix problems. The church is the solution. We're a community who, as we obey Christ, figures it out. But often, we're so busy looking at other people's sins both communally and individually, that we never take time to really look at our own sins uh, and to, to see how we should be reforming ourselves and our communities. Israel needed to be better Israel, but instead they were too busy cheering on the destruction of the nations around them. We really had no reason to not commit the crimes they were committing. And then to tie this into Lent, you know, Lent's this time for us to look at our sins and to maybe have a mirror held up 
into our own hearts and to see what, what sins there are in, in our lives that we need to clear away or work on. And it's a time where perhaps we, we intentionally stop focusing on other people's sins uh, and instead shine that mirror back at us and we, we discover where we've been off and where we can repent and grow. Um, at our recent Ash Wednesday service, if you were there, everyone got a rock. And the rock represented sin. Kind of the weight of sin, how it burdens you down. Especially, you know, one rock after another rock after another rock. And everyone took a rock home with them. Mine's on my nightstand. Uh, and we're going to incorporate these rocks, these representations of sin, in our Good Friday service. Uh, and so I wanted to give everyone the chance, in case you missed or weren't able to go to the Ash Wednesday service, to grab a rock, um, again, as a representation of the sin that um, we're thinking of and praying over and repenting of this Lent season, um, so that you can also use it in our Good Friday service. I think it will be a pretty moving moment uh, there. So mine's on my nightstand. I pick it up a couple times a day. Sometimes when I pray, I look at it. To be honest, I'm getting kind of sick of it. I'm glad I'm one week closer to Good Friday where I can put it where it belongs right at the foot of the cross at the the place where God dealt his ultimate judgment for all of our sins but it wasn't on us and where we receive salvation that's what Lent's about right? preparing ourselves be able to understand and appreciate Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. So after communion, um, if you want, we'll put the rocks in the back, and if you don't have a rock, um, please grab one and hold on to it uh, so that you can bring it as well to the Good Friday service. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for...